0: We'll hear argument next in number 917749, uh, Jose Antonio Ortega Rodriguez versus United States. Mr. Gailey, you may proceed.
1: Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. The government and the petitioner now agree that a former fugitive from sentencing does not automatically forfeit his right to challenge his conviction on appeal. The only issue left for this Court to decide is whether the Court of Appeals for the Eleventh Circuit abused its discretion in denying petitioner his access to appeal. We say it did, for three reasons. One, there was no l- prejudice... L- l-
0: Mr. Gine, l- let me find out about what, what you and the government, you say, agree to here. You, you both agree that the right to appeal may be forfeited if there is a case-by-case analysis, so to speak?
1: Yes, Your Honor, we do agree that undertaking a case-by-case analysis in the proper case may result and a dismissal of an appeal this is through the court's inherent powers to regulate its own affairs we do not believe that the the automatic rule as the 11th circuit employs um, is a proper exercise of those supervisory powers and consequently uh, in this case it was it was an abuse of discretion not to have allowed the appeal to go forward the three reasons why we believe
2: well, why you're there what if what if uh that automatic rule would be bad, but a lesser automatic rule would have been okay. An automatic rule involving fewer situations would have been okay. And, and this situation comes within that lesser category. What would be the
1: situation? I do, I do not believe, Justice Scalia, that the, the court, in exercising its supervisory powers, can have any automatic rule. Congress has conferred jurisdiction upon the appellate courts to hear such appeals. The Court, in exercising its supervisory powers, that is, uh, powers that are necessary for the courts to function, have, from time to time, and including cases in front of this Court, have dismissed appeals. Uh,
2: so... You cannot is- have any precedent, precedential decisions, then? Can't say, you know, whenever fact a b and c is is present uh you lose you can't do that that's just ordinary precedent i thought everything we do is governed by precedent
1: your honor that is ordinary precedent The, the the problem that petitioner has with that approach to the problem though uh is that congress has conferred the jurisdiction not the courts the courts cannot limit their own jurisdiction but for an exercise of these inherent powers that the courts have.
2: They have to reinvent the wheel every time a case comes, I mean, the judge can't say, gee, we had a case just like this two weeks ago, and there we held factors A, B, and C being present, you're out. But, well, but we have to rethink it again this time. They, they really
1: have to do that? Yes, and the reason why is that Congress conferred the jurisdiction. Congress can limit it, as this court faced with a Texas legislative decision in Estelle versus Darrow where the Texas legislator limited the, the legislatively-granted right to appeal, we do believe that the, the discretionary analysis in this case was abused for three reasons. And these three reasons are ones that historically uh, courts have looked at in order to determine whether or not, in its discretion and in the exercises of its supervisory powers, a court ought to decline to hear an appeal. Those three grounds are no prejudice in the appellate court, prejudice into potential post-appellate proceedings, and the vindication of the court's authority. In this case, under the analysis of all three of those factors, it would have been an abuse of discretion not to have gone forward with the appeal. So on factor number one, prejudice to the appellate court, there was none. This issue on appeal, a
3: flat rule that uh, someone who absconds while his appeal is pending
1: uh, has, uh, deserves to have his appeal dismissed? If someone absconds while his appeal is pending, has this Court reasoned in a line of cases well, beginning That's a pretty with flat effect. rule, isn't
3: it?
1: Yes, Your Honor, but the... Well, isn't
3: There's isn't nothing case to
1: case about that. Well, except that the Court always, when they made the determination, they did not exercise it in an automatic fashion. This court, while it looked at fugitives during an appeal pending, and expressed concerns about, uh, we thought there was uh, apparently we thought there was
3: a class of cases where the uh, where you could dispense uh, with case-by-case analysis because you'd always come out the same way.
1: This court never well. This court nevertheless uh, undertook such analysis, and as a matter of fact, for a class of cases. I'm sorry.
3: For a class of cases, I suppose. The class well, was, that fug- the, was that just for the case that we had before us?
1: The, ca- the class that Your Honor is referring to is the case where the fugitives are pending appeal, outpending appeal. The Court has ruled on cases where fugitives have been fugitives at the time appeal was pending. However, in those cases, the Court was reversing a favorable result at the Court of Appeals level. Nevertheless. The Court did not take the position that automatically, because the fugitive had left during the appeal pending, that the Court was divested of jurisdiction in some fashion. Rather, the Court looked at the individual case and made a determination whether or not in this Court's powers it ought to decline to hear the appeal.
0: I don't think you should lump together, Mr. Galey, the cases we've had from state courts involving this and the cases from federal courts, because our only authority over state courts is the Constitution, whereas here you're relying at least in part on the congressional grant of the right of appeal.
1: That's correct, Your Honor, and I did not mean to lump those two things together. What I was merely trying to illustrate inarticulately, though it may have been, was that this court, even when the court declined to hear an appeal, it did not set down an, an automatic rule. Rather, it it made reference to the fact that it had the authority not to hear the appeal, but did not say that it was divested somehow of jurisdiction because the appeal, uh, because the petitioner was a fugitive. In addition, in this particular case,
4: uh, suppose that, that in this case. Uh, Your client had absconded and uh, was absent for three years, during which time an appeal had been pending and was dismissed. Uh, Could you argue that the dismissal was invalid at that point?
1: Possibly, although obviously, as Your Honor points out, the longer and more protracted the period of fugitivity, the more likely it will be that the, the very nature of the fugitivity during the appellate process has, in some way, compromised the appellate court's ability to deal with the appeals. However, it is still in the court's—it is still a discretionary rather than a mandatory, reflexive application of a rule, because in this particular case, I would suggest to the court that because the issue is strictly and solely sufficiency of the evidence. And because the record has already been prepared and the briefs are already filed, that even a period of fugitivity for three years might not necessarily result in an automatic dismissal. At at that point, Your Honor, I believe that the third issue that courts look at, vindication of the court's authority, would largely come into play. And this court has consistently, or or at least consistently when the petitioner was the, the, the criminal defendant, has consistently denied that kind of relief. In this case, the the appeal, the record has been prepared, the brief has been filed, the only issue in the case is sufficiency of the evidence. And moreover, the, the merits of the appeal are not just abstract. Rather, a similarly situated co-defendant has had his conviction reversed because of the insufficiency of the evidence. The defendant in this case received a 15-year sentence on the same case for which the Court of Appeals, with a similarly situated co-defendant, reversed the conviction.
0: Are you suggesting that one factor that must be considered is the likelihood of success on appeal?
1: That is one of the factors, Your Honor, that has been considered in the past in evaluating whether or not a court ought to dismiss an appeal. That is one of the factors.
0: Uh, that really doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? I mean, if if you're going to uh, dismiss an appeal, you're saying you're not entitled to the judgment of the court on the merits of your case because you have in some way defaulted or, or waived, and so to, to take into account Whether or not you would have had much of a go at it had you not defaulted away seems inconsistent.
1: Well, it it, it very well may be in many cases, however there are some cases, for example, where there may be plain error, or there may be misconduct on the part of the government in in final argument, or the court may have not given an instruction that that the appellate court believes uh, ought to have been given, and because of the significance of the particular instruction, may choose to go forward with the appeal. So the, the essence of what the petitioner has been saying all along is that it is a discretionary call on the part of the court and not a woodenly applied automatic. So, uh,
0: an appellate court can say, uh, we, under our other factors, we'd hold you, you would defaulted," but this is a kind of a case we've been looking for for a long time uh, to decide on the merits, and so we're going to do it. That would be permissible. Some appellate courts have in fact done that.
1: The second fact. So, so you
5: really want a, a kind of a three-prong test plus anything else the court wants to bring in, because this doesn't fit in your three prongs.
1: It's it's a discretionary analysis, Your Honor, and the court is is. So, in all I'm
5: saying is, I thought your argument began by saying there's a essentially a, a three-part inquiry, and and you're you're going beyond that.
1: I am going beyond that only because of the nature of, of the, uh, the merits on appeal is one of the factors that has been looked at, although, quite practically speaking, I have lumped that into factor number two, which, which focuses on the – On, on prejudice
5: to the appellate process?
1: That's correct. How does it fit there? Well, in a case where uh, the, the case has merit, but the period of fugitivity has been a protracted period of time, it may be impossible or impractical for the government to re prosecute. So in that case, rather than militating in favor of hearing the appeal, the court within its supervisory powers might choose not to hear the appeal in applying so so
5: the. So the greater the chances of success, the, the less likelihood of, of being given relief?
1: The greatest the chances of success on An the appeal, appeal the yeah. greater the likelihood. I I, – it's difficult for me to quantify exactly how those factors will play out, because the Court's question uh, seemingly would involve almost any analysis in almost any case. And obviously it's going to depend upon the facts and circumstances in an individual case as to whether or not the Court wants to to use its discretion in refusing to hear an appeal. In this – sorry, Justice Scalia, did you have – well, well,
2: finish that if, if you were answering that. I, I was moving on. Really. Oh, oh, good. On. Well, don't move on. Just, okay. just, for a minute. I assume that that, that the the consequence of, of your proposition that uh, that uh, each case has to be decided on its own facts is that uh, there's no such thing as an abuse of discretion, right? I, I, guess, uh, I guess a I guess the court could never be reversed for either uh, uh, either dismissing or not dismissing because of the uh, fugitiveness. Well, what basis would you have to reverse? I mean, you reverse because some general principle has been violated, and you're telling us there are no general principles.
1: I believe that in a case where the court exercises its discretion not to hear an appeal, that that is always subject to an abuse of discretion analysis.
2: How can you possibly abuse discretion that is not subject to any general rules? You say that no general rules exist.
1: The general rules that exist are that the, the right to appeal is, is fundamental, especially in a criminal case. The other proposition is that in spite of the right to appeal, which is a congressionally conferred right, that the court in an exercise of its inherent powers can limit the right to appeal in, in, in certain classes of cases whereas there has been some fugitivity. It is impossible to set down a bright-line rule to say that if a uh, defendant is gone more than X number of days or months, that there is going to be some sort of prejudice presumed because, in some cases, a period of fugitivity of less than that might well militate against going forward with the appeal. If, for example, witnesses have have died or or their memories have dimmed or things of that sort, and the relief being sought would require a retrial. In those cases, uh, the court within its supervisory powers might well determine not to go forward with the appeal. Nevertheless, there's a whole other class of cases where a period of fugitivity might be even longer, where there is no good reason for the court to exercise its discretion and limit its jurisdiction in that way.
3: (coughs) You mean there's no... uh, there's no, there's no good reason for it, deciding not to hear the appeal. Not, not, it isn't limiting its jurisdiction.
1: That, that's, well, that's correct. Yeah. Not to, not to hear, hear the appeal. In this case, with reference to the second prong about appellate, uh, post, potential post-appellate proceedings, the only issue is sufficiency of the evidence. There will be no retrial. There will not be any prejudice to the government which might be attendant to a re after a period of time. The third prong is the vindication of the court's authority.
0: When you say the only issue is sufficiency of the evidence, you mean that no, no question is being raised on appeal about uh, improper evidence admitted or that sort of thing? No, Your it's Honor. just strictly one question, was there sufficient evidence to support a finding of the That's or? correct. Which, which you say has already been decided.
1: Well, it has been decided. party's case. As to a co defendant that, that is similarly situated. That's correct. The third prong is, is that the other courts have looked at is the vindication of the court's authority. In this case, the petitioner has been prosecuted by the government, convicted, and sentenced by the district court for violations of contempt of court as well as Bond Reform Act violations. He has been sentenced to a period of 21 years, or 21 months. Uh, incarceration for committing that violation. Consequently, the, the authority of the district court has been vindicated by the petitioner's, uh, period of fugitivity. Well, you could always
0: say that, you know, of someone coming back after 20 years if they get a sentence for, uh, for ab- absconding as well.
1: That's correct, but again, that is only one of the factors that that courts have looked at and only one of the factors that we believe are appropriate for inquiry. But you say
0: that factor is satisfied by the appealing defendant in every case where he is sentenced for his offense of of bail jumping or whatever it was?
1: Not necessarily in every case, but certainly in a case where uh, the period of fugitivity begins before the appellate process uh, starts off and he has not been a fugitive and has been available uh, to accept the consequences of an adverse ruling at the Court of Appeals in those cases well, Of course, the only
0: re- that that really is fortuitous in this case It's not as if your client returned voluntarily.
1: He was caught. He was he was arrested. Yeah, that's correct well, so he gets credit for that He doesn't he doesn't get credit for that he got he gets punished for that as he has been by prosecution and conviction for those two statutes.
0: But he nonetheless gets favorable treatment because he was back, albeit not of his own will.
1: It's not a matter of favorable treatment, Your Honor. What it is a matter of is participating in his rights to appeal when there is no reason not to have the appeal go forward. Again, the decisions regarding the the parameters of the appellate process are defined by Congress. If Congress had chosen, as they did in in, in enacting the Bond Reform Act, they mentioned contempt of court as well as uh, violation of 3146 directly.
0: What about dismissing an appeal for failure to file a timely notice? Uh, Congress hasn't provided the the, the rules, provide the notice. That's correct. Is that a violation of Congress's conferring of a right to appeal?
1: Not at all, because within the rulemaking authority of, of the courts, Uh, timetables and time limits can be established in order to regulate the the appeals and the litigation before the court. That is not present in this case.
0: No, but that is an example of a rule that certainly impinges on an unlimited right to take advantage of the congressional right. And what the government is saying is that the courts of appeals have rulemaking authority in this in this area too,
1: exactly right, Your Honor. However, the rulemaking authority cannot be in conflict with constitution or with statutory rights and can neither enlarge or bridge any rights that are thus conferred i didn 't understand you to make
0: any constitutional claim in this case.
1: We did not make a constitutional claim i 'm um, trying to draw the distinction between the the rulemaking authority of the court in a manner of regulating the appellate practice before it and deciding to have a blanket rule which which exercises non-jurisdiction in cases where there has been a period of fugitivity.
5: Would you say that it was an abuse of the court's discretion uh, in a case in which there had not been a prosecution for escape uh, for the court to say, look, I don't want to encourage the United States attorney to waste more court time on on, on escape prosecutions and I will simply... Uh, cut off the right to appeal. I will simply find the right to appeal waived, uh, and that'll, that'll teach him a lesson. Uh, in that case, there would have been no independent vindication. Uh, so would that be a proper use of the court's power to, to vindicate its, uh, its position?
1: No, I do not believe that it would be.
5: Well, if it wouldn't be, then isn't the answer, isn't the, isn't it going to be the case that in every case, uh, whether a person has been prosecuted for escape or not, he could be, and whether bail has been uh, revoked or not, it could be, so that in every case your third prong, in fact, is going to result in, 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 a, in a finding favorable to the to the party who now wants to, to, to the fugitive who now wants to appeal.
1: I do believe, Your Honor, that that third prong is one of lesser significance than the first two, primarily because Congress has has spoken in the Contempt Statute as well as the Bond Reform Act Statute in this whole area of vindication of the Court's authority. Well, given
5: the fact that Congress has so spoken, what kind of a case uh, uh, might result in, a, in, a, in an act of discretion favorable to, uh, to a waiver conclusion as opposed to uh, a non-waiver conclusion? When would you ever come out against you?
1: Focusing just on the third prong? Yeah. I suppose that uh, if the period of fugitivity directly uh, occurred while the appeal was pending, as this Court has been faced with on several occasions, there I believe that, that as a re- response to that, uh, the Court would be within its rights to uh, dismiss the appeal. Why? I
5: mean, they can still uh, go after him for escape. They can still revoke the bail. Why? Why does the court uh, need it in that case, rather than in the case in which he appeals before, in which he escapes before the appeal uh, uh, has begun?
1: Because the court has the right to regulate the matters that are before it, and in the in the hypothet that your honour poses.
5: You're saying it's like direct contempt as opposed to indirect
1: contempt? It would directly affect this court or the appellate court's function. The Court of Appeals for the...
5: Why? Other... They can go ahead and decide the appeal? The defendant is never in the courtroom for an appeal?
1: The reasons why were set forth in the whole line of cases beginning with Smith over 100 years ago, or nearly 100 years ago.
5: Yeah, but I think you're, uh, you're undercutting that. I mean, you're, you're, I don't see why your rationale for for prosecution and bail revocation doesn't undercut the uh, the rationale for the so-called kind of direct contempt analysis.
1: It's it's not a direct contempt analysis; rather, it is it is an inherent power analysis where this court has the right to regulate the matters that are before it, and in the case where an appeal is pending before it, and this court recognizes that because the defendant is gone, he or she is not uh, available to accept the consequences of an adverse judgment, this Court, in, in a vindication of its, of its authority, can dismiss the appeal. However, I do not believe that there is any case which holds, or, or by, by either the Court of Appeals or this Court, that automatically, if there is a period of fugitivity at the district court level, that the Supreme Court or the Court of Appeals can just dismiss the appeal. Mr. Gailey,
2: can you explain to me why you you are willing to concede, as I I think you have, that courts without special statutory authorization can establish time limits for filing of of notice of appeal and say if you don't meet those limits, you are out without going case by case and saying, well, you know, this fellow came within two weeks but had a lot of trouble at home. It isn't a case by case evaluation. You have a time limit, that's it. Not at all. Now, why is it okay there, but it's not okay here?
1: First of all, those rules that the court suggests are ones that are the product of, of, of thoughtful analysis and discretion and are the end result of at least according to the rules of appellate procedure in an appellate court context, a majority of vote by the uh, Court of Appeals judges. With reference to the appellate rules themselves or the criminal rules of procedure, this Court and the Congress, Congress then adopts in statutory form those rules. They are there which as expressions of the Court's power to regulate the matters before it. This case, there was nothing before the Court of Appeals I understand. You, you mean those, those rules would not,
2: a court would not be able to have such rules unless they were submitted to Congress and, and made statutory? Is that, is that it? Not at all. You, you it, can um, have those rules.
1: Of course. In, but, in the exercise of its own supervisory authority. Precisely, except when, when that power is exercised, it's got to be not, it, it cannot be in noncompliance with either statutory right or congressional right. And in this court, this court looked at a similar rule in the Thomas versus Orrin case, where you had an expression by Congress of a limitation of the right to appeal from magistrates' orders. The court went to great lengths to ascertain and to conclude that it was not an arbitrary rule, that it was not a jurisdictional rule. And one of the things they looked at was the fact that in a recent case, the court had had declined to treat it as a waiver. But it did. But
2: we didn't ascertain that it was not a rule, which is what you want us to ascertain here. You want us to say, since it is a rule, it's bad.
1: No, I'm sorry if I've, I've misled the court, if that's the conclusion that you have. It's not that if it's a rule, that it's bad. But rather, when, a, when an appellate court attempts to, to use its discretion not to hear an appeal for which jurisdiction is conferred by Congress, that there, it needs to be done in conformity with its supervisory powers, and in this particular case, there is no reason for the Court of Appeals for the Eleventh Circuit <clears throat> to have denied the petitioner the right to have his case heard on a well, <coughs> I wonder,
6: Go ahead. Yes, I wonder if that's true, because his flight Kept this case alive much longer than it otherwise would, would have been kept alive. He's gone, what, three years or quite a long He's gone for 11 months. 11 right? months. Well, for 11 months, because he wasn't present as a sentencing, he had a right to resentencing, because he had to be present. Isn't that what, and therefore they resentenced, but that was all because of his flight, that it postponed for 11 months, therefore the whole appellate process is 11 months behind schedule. That's, that's correct. So there was, a, there was a, at least a reason why one could conclude That his flight had an adverse impact on the appellate process
1: except the court didn't so conclude rather the argument made below was that just by virtue of the fugitive status he was precluded from an appeal so there was not any sort of analysis at all done about whether or not the court of appeals in its discretion ought not to go forward with the appeal. they didn't
6: write, they didn't really write an opinion explaining what they did did they or i can't remember it they, they
1: merely they, they granted the government's motion to dismiss and the argument on that motion was based on preclusion not based on any discretionary analysis did
7: the defendant have a right to be resentenced or could the trial court have said no we sentenced you in absentia and that's it the,
1: the trial court was convinced that
7: well did
1: the trial court have to resentence him? The trial court did not have to resentence him.
7: And had it not, then the appeal time would have run, and he'd be out.
1: If not, then the appeal time would have been run, had run, and he would have been out. That's correct. What, what
4: was the authority of the district court to reopen the sentence, anyway?
1: Uh, based upon the fact that the defendant was not present uh, and could not allocute on his own behalf, the district court was satisfied that the sentencing ought to be vacated. And, and Well,
4: what's the authority of the district court to do that?
1: Uh, the authority, there is a a, uh, a case in the Eleventh Circuit which allows the court and its supervisory powers to do that. So the district court judge did you do that. You can
4: vacate the sentence at any time if the uh, defendant had been sentenced in absentia. That's the rule?
1: Um, th- that is, that's not the rule. Rather, the court made the made the determination. The district court judge made the determination. I'm,
4: I'm asking what the 11th Circuit's authority says. In what circumstances, in a district judge, reopen a sentencing after the period for modification has run under the federal rules? When, when criminal the, procedure.
1: I'm sorry, when the court is satisfied that in, in the particular case the sentencing ought to be reopened, and in this particular case, the district court judge did express. So the
4: 11th Circuit says that, that any time a district court judge is satisfied sentencing has to, may be reopened and it can do it despite the provisions of the federal rules of the criminal procedure? Court,
1: the district court judge had the, had the discretion and still had jurisdiction over the case. The argument made below was uh, dealt with his presence at the sentencing as well as whether or not the court ought to have sentenced him in absentia since there was a question about Uh, whether notice had been given. Oh, sorry.
3: Uh, I I wouldn't think there would be many cases like this uh, where uh, you can be gone for 11 months and still have a right to appeal. I suppose if if you take off, uh, if, if the defendant takes off and stays away longer than his appeal time, why, normally he just can't take an appeal. And you don't object to that. You say that uh, Courts of Appeals can, can set times at which uh, appeals have to be taken? That's correct. And certainly Congress does, can ha- do that by statute. So, that's So if correct. you're gone longer, if you run off and stay longer than your appeal time allows, you're out,
1: normally. Normally, that's Unless true, Unless you Honor. can convince some
3: district judge to do what happened here. Normally,
1: that would be true. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Mr. Gailey. Ms. Wax, we'll hear from you.
8: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, Petitioner starts out his argument by saying that the government concedes that fugitivity does not automatically lead to forfeiture of an appeal. That is a highly misleading statement. It's true, we agree that the mere fact that someone is fugitive does not require any Court of Appeals to dismiss his appeal, because there is no requirement that any Court of Appeals adopt the disentitlement doctrine or extend the rule of dismissal for fugitivity to pre
7: appeal flight. In that Max, do you mind starting at the beginning? Is this case just a fluke? I mean this man was resentenced when he didn't have to be, is that right? Well, what's the authority for resentencing? Uh, it's a bit mysterious justice
8: o'connor but as we understand it we we understand the district court to have in effect granted a 2255 motion or that's how we think what the that? petitioner's motion was styled um a motion for a correction of sentence because the sentence was illegally Did he get imposed. A longer or a shorter sentence we got a shorter sentence your honor when he filed his motion after returning, after being recaptured, he filed a motion with the District Court citing Rule 43 and Rule 32. Rule 43, which has to do with proceedings in absentia, and Rule 32, um, which governs uh, sentencing, you know, procedures at sentencing, the right of allocution, the right to be informed of your right to appeal, etc. And as we understand, Did the district it,
7: court have authority then to reopen the sentence? Um, well, let's put it I'm not
8: sure is the answer. The government, the government did not object
7: the authority. No, it did not.
8: The government did not challenge the authority of the court to reopen the sentence. We did object to the reduction of sentence. It can be argued, we don't think that the the, uh, defect is jurisdictional. It can be argued that the district court shouldn't have resentenced him because, number one, he never took a direct appeal on the sentencing and absentia, but then you can argue that you shouldn't hold the defendant to the obligation to take a direct appeal if he's not there. Um, On the other hand, you could argue that this isn't the kind of error that can be entertained on a 2255. There are lots of possible objections that you could make, but the fact is, that the judge did resentence him. Uh, we didn't object to it. And as we understood it, the Court of Appeals took that as a final judgment, as the sentence uh, that triggered his appeal and his the appeal of his underlying claim. Yeah. Took the second sentence. Took it the second sentence. As Ooh, who was the, the final district judgment. judge
0: in this case?
8: Who? Um, I, I don't. Judge King.
0: Thank you. Is, is
4: it. Uh, your position, does the government have a position as to whether or not an appeal could be dismissed if the appeal is from 2255 uh, order, an order pursuant to 2255, <clears throat> and the escape or fugitivity was before the district court made that order, i.e. suppose this were 2255 yeah. proceeding?
8: I understand what you're saying. Um, if we were to consider this and once again, we're not sure what it really is, what animal it is. But if it was a 2255, um, in the sense, I think that we would take the position uh, that, yes, be- because this was treated as the sentence in this case, the final judgment.
4: Suppose it were 2255 proceeding. You'd take the position that, yes, it could be dismissed on the ground of fugitivity that, it, uh, it, that occurred before the 2255 action was commenced in the district court? Okay,
8: If you're asking what our position is about dismissal of appeals from collateral attack, that's what you're asking, yeah. collateral attacks, um, the government's position would be, well, first of all, the question is whether the Court of Appeals has a rule in this case that we're willing to defend of dismissal of appeals in these in those situations. And I think our position would be that if it's a true collateral attack, that uh, the fugitivity sh- uh, and the failure to take an appeal should be treated as an ordinary default, uh, procedural default, and that the procedural default rules should apply um, in those cases. Uh, but once again, it's not really our choice to make these rules. The question is, you know, what are the rules that the courts can make that are reasonable, that are within their supervisory powers. I mean, we're not standing here commending to the court one particular rule as opposed to another um, because that's not the posture of this case. The posture and, uh, of this Ms. Watt, case... If I could just
6: throw this in, I probably shouldn't interrupt you. If you say normal procedural default principle should be applied, this is a very unusual case because he can make a pretty powerful showing of actual innocence.
8: Your Honor, we disagree with that. He can't make a showing of actual... Well, you don't
6: agree the facts are the same as to his co-defendant.
8: There is an enormous uh, difference between actual innocence, the type that excuses procedural default, and falling short of proving something beyond a reasonable doubt.
6: He's not entitled to reapplication of the presumption of innocence when there's not proof beyond a reasonable doubt that he's guilty?
8: Well, we understand the actual innocence exception Uh, you know, for collateral attack to mean there has to be affirmative proof that you didn't do it and it has to be tied to a violation of a constitutional right. That's the government's position on the actual innocence exception.
6: Could I ask this? uh, Is this a sport, as Justice O'Connor points out, because of the long delay? Would, Would it have been proper for the 11th Circuit to dismiss the appeal if, after he was found guilty, Say they sent the case to the probation officer for a pre-sentencing report and set the sentencing date six weeks later after which the normal appeal process would run. And if he had fled during that six weeks period and been recaptured before sentencing on those facts, could they dismiss the appeal then?
8: Well, I think the court, a court, a court could have a rule which would allow it to dismiss an appeal under those circumstances.
6: Even though the, the flight had absolutely no impact on the appellate process at all, or yes. even the sentencing process.
8: Yes, the government's position is that courts of appeals may proceed to make, using their supervisory authority, to make blanket across the board type rules which do not have to proceed case by case and would encompass that well, What type if instead of, of a flight
6: during the six weeks period, he committed another offense, say he, he uh, got drunk or, or something like that, violation of his, his probation, could they dismiss his appeal for that?
8: Well, I mean, that...
6: And why not? What's the difference between the two? I, know, I understand flight during an appeal or something that affects the proceedings, but if you make a hypothesis that has no impact whatsoever on either the district court or the Court of Appeals proceeding, is there still justification for dismissing the appeal?
8: If it is pursuant to a general rule that has a rational justification that is, that is reasonable in terms of the problem it's designed to address, there are three criteria for well, rationality. We have a general a rule that supervisor. committing
6: probation violations is uh, is bad, and we don't want that to happen. So we'll just use dismissal of appeals as a remedy for it. That's certainly rational.
8: Well, I think uh, in terms of uh, of committing probation violations. Um, there, you know, it would depend, and I, you know, I, I'm not a master of probation violation law, but I think it would depend on whether, uh, you know, that exercise of supervisory authority conflicted with a rule of this court or a statute or uh, some, some body of law that this court has developed. Uh, to govern the particular area, well, and if I'm the answer it was doesn't. no, this, in
6: this case it doesn 't
8: well, if the answer was no, then then it would be permissible. but let me make a point dismissal about that is
6: sort of an all purpose weapon to deter improper conduct
8: L- well, the answer is yes, but let me make a point about that. Any time this court decides that it doesn 't like the way the courts of appeals are exercising their supervisory authority under rule forty seven It doesn't have to make a finding of unreasonableness, of conflict with a statute or a rule or a constitution before it can act to impose a uniform national rule on the courts of appeals. And the fact is, if the court validates or permits the 11th Circuit dismissal rule to stand, it's not really committing itself to to the next extension of that rule in the next case. Because
2: certainly, I mean, do I really have to buy into the, into, into the one if I buy into the other? I mean, is, isn't it a perfectly reasonable distinction between uh, 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 parole violations uh, uh, that, that fugitivity uh, during the course of the, of the trial or before the appeal has been perfected Demonstrates a, a contempt for the uh, judicial process that's in front of the court. And the court is not punishing evil doing at large, but punishing evil doing that has to do with this very proceeding before this very court system.
8: Well, to the extent that dismissal. So it is
2: tied into the particular case, isn't it?
8: Well, no, it's tied into the sorts of interests that this court has recognized as, as valid. that that the courts can vindicate through supervisory rules with regard to, to, you know, fugitivity. I mean, you can't dismiss for a parole violation. If you can't dismiss, it's because there's really no good reason. There's nothing that the court is accomplishing by doing that, that this court is willing to accept. Justice Stephen gives you a situation
2: where nothing good is accomplished by, uh, in, in, in a practical sense, by dismissing for the fugitivity either. But that's no t- time's been lost or anything else.
8: But that's to assume that courts have to proceed case by case, that they have to look at the circumstances of each case. But there's nothing that this court has ever said about supervisory rules that would require a court to do that. Well, Quartz-
0: does, Ms. Wax, doesn't there have to be some connection with the appellate process? I mean, take Justice Stevens' hypothesis a step further supposing the guy creates trouble before he's tried in jail. He wants more food and they won't give it to him, so he starts a riot. Would that be a reason for if he's ultimately convicted for dismissing his appeal?
8: Of course not. It it has to be, it has to have, as a general matter some effect on the appellate process. Well, it has to involve a flouting of the appellate process. Well, what,
0: what effect does the uh, f- uh, pro- uh, probation hypothesis given to you by Justice Stevens have on, on the appellate process?
8: Well, I mean, I think the answer is it doesn't have, you know, a similar effect to fleeing the court. And in that sense, uh, it's possible that it wouldn't be a valid exercise of of supervisory authority. But my point is that whether or not it, it were valid and there were a good reason to dismiss because of this, you could have a blanket rule.
4: So it's a, it's a rationality standard? Yes. The, the, the rule the Court of Appeals adopts has to be rationally related to the integrity of the court process? Is that, is that what it is?
8: Right. the to the, or to to the, the in- order,
4: orderly uh, functioning of the appellate court process?
8: Right, to the orderly functioning of the court process.
4: What would you do do if there, there there were a rule or a line of decisions which required dismissal of the appeal, if there was an attempt, abortive, attempt to escape?
8: Well, it depends on how much weight one puts on this court's statement in its line of cases that flouting... The, uh, the authority of the court is an independent reason to dismiss. I think, prob- you know, one could argue that that wouldn't rise to the level of a su- sufficient flouting of the court's authority. Uh, I think I think that you could make a distinction between that case and true fugitivity because in true fugitivity, someone just removes themselves. From the court's authority, succeeds in removing themselves and thereby, in effect, displays their unwillingness to submit to the court's uh, jurisdiction. Well, does or the
7: rule control. have to relate at all to flouting uh, of the appellate court's authority? It's the appellate court that's adopting the rule, or do you take the position that the rule can encompass? some flouting of the district court's authority, even though the district court didn't see fit to enforce any such discipline.
8: We do think that it can uh, take into account um, possible the possibility of prejudice both to the appellate court and the trial court. Our submission is this. Must there be
7: prejudice found? Not in every case, Your Honor. We think that there you ca- think the rule can apply as a blanket rule in the absence of any prejudice in the particular case? Well, to the yes, we, we,
8: we, we think that it's just a garden-variety principle of rulemaking, and this Court has said it in cases like Weinberger v. Salfi and Arizona v. Maricopa County, that it's not necessary to minutely examine the facts of each and every instance to which a rule applies uh, to see whether it exemplifies the concerns that motivated the rule in order to have a valid rule. Rules can be based upon generalizations, generalizations that certain actions on the part of uh, individuals, actions which they can choose not to take, uh, will tend to, in many cases, have certain adverse effects that the court is entitled to protect against well and certainly
3: the certainly his, his his uh taking off uh prevented the uh court of appeals from entertaining an, an appeal in a timely fashion and if and if an appeal is now allowed you're going to have two cases instead of one maybe by different panels things like that so In a normal course of events, the the Court probably would have heard his appeal along with his co-defendants.
8: Correct, Your Honor. And our position in this case is even if the Court decides that one has to proceed case by case with fugitive dismissal rules and there has to be a showing of prejudice, there was prejudice in this case and there was certainly enough to justify dismissal. A petitioner was gone for 11 months, and his appeal was delayed by more than that because there were post-trial motions. Uh, In this case, there were co-defendants with closely related claims, and because of his fugitivity, the Court had to take up the closely related claims of his co-defendants separately and at a different time, or would have had to, than his case. And we think that that's enough dislocation and disruption of the appellate process to justify dismissal, uh, especially considering what the court has said in cases like Estelle v. Doro, where they've said that, uh, for example, a state may adopt a fugitive dismissal rule um, just based on creating a deterrent to flight, number one, and number two, vindicating the orderly and dignified uh, process of the appellate court.
6: May I ask you another question? What, what was the rule that the Court of Appeals applied here? Do we know?
8: Well, it's hard to know uh because the court simply dismissed the appeal, and so uh you know it's it's difficult to say well, was we, there some
3: prior case in which they articulated uh, <clears throat> uh the reasons for dismissing in circumstances like this
8: Yes. There were two prior <coughs> cases that were relied on by the government here: United States v. Holmes, United States v. London. Two eleven circuits. Was case.
3: this from the same circuit? I take it. Yes, Your Honor. And uh, what did they say?
8: Well. Uh,
3: that, that does, in any case, uh, uh, they're going to dismiss.
8: Well, if you read those cases carefully, the government thinks that in effect, they, those cases look both ways. On the one hand, there are statements in Holmes to the effect that, because this individual fled of, of, fled custody, uh, we are going to dismiss the case, which have a categorical tone to them and imply that this is a blanket rule. On the other the case, hand,
3: dismiss the appeal that had already been filed.
8: Uh, no, that was a case like this one, mm-hmm. in which the individual fled following conviction, returned to be sentenced, and then filed an appeal. That was a pre-appeal flight case. Um, so the so court. He, had a,
3: he, he did file a timely appeal?
8: Yes. Well, that's the whole point of these cases, is, is, as you pointed out earlier, Justice White. Individuals can hang up these cases in the District Court just by choosing to flee prior to sentencing, not showing up in their, at their sentencing. They can keep the court case pending before the Court of Appeals, prevent it from going before the District Court, and prevent it from going before the Court of Appeals. And essentially what petitioner is saying is that these people should be treated differently from people who choose to come to their sentencing, thereby triggering the obligation to file a timely appeal, which then either they will not timely file, because they're fugitive, or will be dismissed under the pending fugitive dismissal rule this Court accepts.
6: Ms. Weiss, is it, it correct that in the cases where they've dismissed the? where there was a flight before sentencing, that the flight was long enough to delay the sentencing, ergo the appellate process as well? None of these cases are like my hypothetical. In other words, there were a flight that didn't delay the sentencing hearing.
8: Uh, no, I, um, I don't recall exactly how long the petitioner was gone in Holmes, but it was a fairly long period. Yeah, it was
3: years. You don't have to be gone very long to hang up the appellate process. Right. Could, uh, could the appellate days. court uh,
4: prohibit any appeal from the sentencing?
8: Well, uh, I think the answer is quite possibly. The Fifth Circuit has recognized its authority to uh, not allow an appeal even from a sentencing um, where someone is sentenced after they returned. In the case in which it recognized that it refused to exercise that authority, that was a case called the United States v. DeVal. Every other circuit that I know of has distinguished between uh, events taking place before the person fled, that is during trial, and what happens after they come back. And they've just elected to extend the dismissal rule only to events pre-flight, as is their prerogative. That's just a choice that the courts of appeals have made in fashioning a fugitive dismissal rule. Could they take it one step further? I think that unless it violates a rule or the Constitution and they think that there are good reasons to do that, probably it would be permissible that a person forfeits not just their right to take an appeal as to prior events, but their right to take an appeal as to a sentence. But it just hasn't been applied that way.
2: Ms. Wax, you, you, you were frightening me a moment ago when you seemed to be en route to saying that we really don't know in this case whether they were applying a rule or indeed were engaging in case-by-case. Determination. I mean, did we take this case just to decide whether their case-by-case case determination was correct? I thought at least there was agreement here that, uh, that that a rule was being applied. But you say maybe not. This is an overwhelmingly insignificant case, if that's so. Uh, well, more more so than I had thought.
8: It's it's not insignificant. Well, let me answer your question first. It's not insignificant, Your Honor, in the following sense. The First Circuit has ruled that they are absolutely, they have no authority to dismiss where the flight is pre-appealed, the person flees and comes back before they're sentenced. So you at least took this case to dispel the, in our opinion, erroneous view, that no Court of Appeals has the authority to dismiss a case under those circumstances whether they go case by case okay. or as well, a mandatory let's... rule. That's comforting. Uh, we, can, we can at least comp- accomplish that much, Justice Scalia. Um. <clears throat> now, um, as I stated, a, supervisory, a, a rule formulated by a Court of Appeals in its supervisory capacity is valid as long as that rule does not conflict with the Constitution, a statute, or rules of procedure, is one that can properly properly be established through adjudication and is reasonable in light of the concerns it is designed to address. And I would just, as a a respect to uh, the authority to establish these rules through adjudication, I would just like to point out that that authority is expressly conferred by the Federal Rule of Appellate Procedure 47. Uh, which says that uh, in all cases not provided for by formal rules promulgated by a vote of the circuit justices, the Court of Appeals may regulate their practice in any manner, not inconsistent with the federal rules of procedure. Um, And this brings up another point that Petitioner made in his argument, which uh, I would like to deal with. He makes the argument that if a rule is mandatory, if a rule adopted by the Court of Appeals, in the exercise of its supervisory power is a general rule, a blanket rule, to which it decides to make no exceptions, that means that the court is somehow abridging its jurisdiction. And we would submit that that is absolute nonsense, because the consequence of that argument would be that every time a a court, through formulating local rules, or uh, this court, through formulating the rules of appellate procedure, Uh, makes a general rule, it's somehow amending section 1291, which is clearly untrue. A court may choose to exercise its dismissal authority in every case, but in a further case, it could always change its mind because it still retains jurisdiction over those particular types of cases. And of course, in Molinaro v. New Jersey, this court recognized that for fugitive dismissal rules, The fact that an individual is fugitive does not strip the case of its character as an adjudicable case or controversy. So the issue of lacking jurisdiction is just—it's a straw man in this case.
6: Just out of curiosity, how big a problem is it? How often do these dismissals occur? You know, do you have any idea, statistically? I—you know—once every year or two, or?
8: Well, they've occurred in every circuit. Uh, at, I least tell you this, at least twelve times, uh, <laughs> And
6: there was one in the first circuit that we we're currently. Crim- in
8: some, uh, right? Yes, and ha- they have occurred. There have been four or five cases in this court, or more, uh, involving this problem. Now, finally, the most important point in this case is that the rule implied applied in this case, the rule of pre appeal fugitive dismissal is reasonable in light of the concerns that the court sought to address. Um, There have been a number of justifications offered for the dismissal of fugitive appeals and in the cases in which the courts have dismissed pending appeals, and this court itself has validated that rule of the dismissal of pending appeals, and most of the justifications offered in those cases apply with equal force to to cases in which the individual flees and returns prior to sentencing and filing his appeal. Do you
3: know whether the uh, United States Attorney uh, appeared personally to oppose or filed a piece of paper himself opposing the motion to resentence?
8: He was there, Your, Hon- Your Honor. He was at the resentencing and he opposed— Oh well, at
3: the resentencing, sentencing but it was he was the at the, when the motion was granted?
8: Yes, yeah, he was I there. See the
3: last paragraph of the public defender's uh, statement says I'm uh, the United States attorney opposes this motion.
8: Right, he opposed it, but it's our he opposed the reduction of sentence Your honor. The reduction from 235 well, right. months to
3: 188 for, months. Was he there to oppose the granting the motion to
8: He was there. At the, there is a transcript, I believe it's in the joint appendix. Yes. Um, the reasons that the court, this court, and other courts have given, as I said, apply with equal force to pre appeal and post appeal flight. And briefly, those reasons are number one, the flouting, the defiance, and the contempt for the court that's shown by someone who absconds. And of course, that's equally grave whether the person goes during the pendency of the appeal or before he's sentenced and fails to show up at sentencing Um, the second reason is to deter flight to provide a disincentive for flight and once again if we have a rule that during a pending appeal if someone flees his case is dismissed but if someone flees before his appeal is filed it won't be dismissed that will simply offer an incentive to people, for people to flee sooner rather than later.
6: May I go back to your flouting authority rationale? Supposing the uh, defendant uh, went on the air and called all the judges that are going to sit on the appeal dishonest and crooked and so forth and really flouted the authority, could you dismiss the appeal for that reason? And if not, why isn't the flight just a form of symbolic speech? <laughs>
3: well, I... <laughs>
8: I think the point, Your Honor, is, is that so, if someone removes himself from the the reach of the court, it's not just a matter of you know of thumbing your well, nose I'm just at the it court. To I don't one rationale. think that you're repetitive. flouting
6: the. You're flouting the authority. Rationale seems to me strictly a First Amendment problem. Well, I, I understand the rest of the reason if you delay and all that, but.
8: I think this would come under a speech act rather than a speech, Your Honor. This would be O'Brien. The O'Brien test would definitely apply here.
6: What if he burned Um, the flag, could you dismiss his appeal for that reason?
8: I don't, Your Honor, I I would say no, because I think what we mean by flouting and contempt for the court is to remove yourself from the court's process, uh, not just coming your nose, burning showing your contempt for the flight. judges, and, and that sort of thing. If
5: you burned the flag in the courtroom, you could penalize it, <laughs> couldn't you?
8: You might be able to do that. Well, I'm not sure Burn after the this court's court case. I, I, mean. <laughs> <laughs> I think under this court's most recent flag-burning cases, probably not. Um, as I said, the second reason is to deter flight, and the deterrent operates equally in both the situations. Um, And finally, dismissal promotes the orderly and efficient operation of the courts and protects against adverse effects on the prosecutor and on the court. And those adverse effects can be felt not necessarily in every case, but potentially in as many cases and as severely whether flight is pre-appeal or during the pendency of the appeal. Um, if the court has no further
6: questions.
0: Thank you, Ms. West. The case is submitted.
6: The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10
2: o'clock.